questioner, Paul is, because her eyes have been opened to this wondrous, amazing grace, and grace is a response to God's love. Wow, he showed us that he actually does love us in spite of us. Gentiles, outcasts, sinners, that's us. That Paul turns and he has something to say about Israel. Israel. It's a question. How can experiencing Jesus' love be the fulfillment of Scripture, especially the Old Testament? Because you see, God's chosen nation, Israel, doesn't believe, not nationally. And so that question comes up, and it's important for us to see, and again, affirm God's plan. We're going to look at that. Here we go. First, God's plan and Paul's relatives. Chapter 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish, verse 3, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul turns and he starts, and now this is a a new section, but it's connected to the last one. He turns and he says, I have anguish in my heart for my kinsmen, Israel. And in fact, he's so concerned that you actually believe him that he he, kind of emphasizes over, I'm really telling the truth. I'm not lying. It's in my heart. He doesn't let his yes be yes here. He actually goes deeper. He wants you so excited that you know and know how hard he feels. I don't know about you, many of us have these feelings. I had relatives. I had my mother-in-law died in my living room. And as far as I know, as to her dying breath, rejecting God. I don't know her heart as she died. So I cling to that. But, but she, over and over, oh, I love her. I want her to know Jesus. I have that desire in my heart. And here's Paul with his relatives saying that he, he deeply feels He wishes he would go to hell so they would know Jesus' love. He doesn't come out and explicitly say that clearly, but his anguish is clearly because Israel is not united to Jesus Christ. So in a sense, I kind of understand that because I have relatives who don't know Jesus and I want them to know Jesus, but that's not really Paul's peace. I mean, I don't know if you stood your... um, child there and you said, Lord, I'll, I'll go to hell forever if you save my child. Whoa. Really? Well, see, he's not actually even talking. Isn't it true that Jesus says, hey, if we leave family, that we'll get family? Isn't it true that in some senses we forsake our family to put our faith in Jesus? That the family bond isn't as strong as, as the bond that we have with our Savior? And that's true. So Paul is talking about something different. The issue is not, I love them so much and I just wish that they know Jesus. The issue is, actually, that God has blessed them so much. God has revealed so much love to them. That's the issue. This bigger Old Testament backdrop. Look at verse 4. They are Israelites. And to them... Belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen. 
So Paul does have anguish for his kinsmen that he loves. This is the apostle to the Gentiles. But his, his, his flavor there's, they've been blessed beyond measure. Oh, that their eyes might be open to the fantastic love of God. Not, not, oh, I wish God would save them because of their awesomeness. Not because, oh, that nation, they spent a thousand years sacrificing to the true God in the temple. No other nation did that. Oh, that God would save them. No, do you see his thought, his flavor? Is that, look, look what they have. God adopted this nation. Israel, my son. They have the adoption. The glory, they actually had the tabernacle of God. God dwelling in the midst of them. What other people ever got to see? God dwelling in the midst of them. God leading them with a flame by night and clouds by day. The covenants, God, the God of the universe. Dealing directly with people. You might dream about that. But to say it's true that the God of the universe dealt directly and made promises with a person, with people, say, wow, they got that. God did that with them. The giving of the law, God's beautiful standard. Worship, they worshiped the true God. Every other nation worshiping idols. Over here, here's Israel worshiping the true God. What a blessing to them. Patriarchs as examples and genetics, their great, great, great grandparents. And then finally, the, the capstone of such love and favor showered on people. Jesus came. The Messiah came through Israel. And so Paul says, I long for them to respond to the overwhelming favor of God. They're God's people, they receive God's promises, and they haven't responded. Wow. What does that mean? Does this mean his promises are over for them? That his word can fail, you know, based on if we fail God, because they failed God. God was good to them and good to them and loved them and loved them and they didn't respond. And so, and so they didn't do it right. And so the spotlight moved. And could that happen to us? Could it be that, you know, God kept the spotlight of his favor on Israel for so long and now he's moved it over to the Gentiles and, you know, therefore all the promises and good stuff they got, man, kicked to the curb. That is done. And Paul's very important. It's important for us to see that their rejection of the Messiah and thus their rejection of experiencing Jesus' love does not mean that God's word has failed. And all this information, all this truth, all this wonder that we've walked through in Romans, all this time that you and I have walked through, where we've walked through and we're saying, wow, I was a sinner and nothing, but I just received the gift of salvation by, oh, by the work of Jesus Christ and my faith and putting my trust in him. That's the truth. And then, could that change? Could it, could it be then that that's not all and, and, and God's going to kind of pull the rug out? No. God hasn't gone back on what he told them. Paul's going to show us. He won't go back on what he told us either. This has always been about the love of Christ. The gospel, the Old Testament and the New, has always been about the love of Jesus Christ. You get that. 
Not our work. It's never been about how well Israel sacrificed or how well they worshipped. That's that's the response. It's always been about God's mercy on them and the Bible has not failed. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the issue. Has the word of God failed? They don't know Jesus, but they've had all this favor on them. And God even made promises to them. How can it be that if God said, I will put my favor on you, then he's taken it away? Has he taken it away? That's the answer. Has he really taken it away? What is Paul going to say? Well, look at his answer. Look at his thinking. His thinking is this. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. Paul gives us two illustrations. Okay, Old Testament. God interacted with Abraham. God made promises to Abraham. I will make you a nation and a people. God throughout showing his favor and his blessing through the adoption and the covenants and the glory and all these things he's just mentioned. He says, oh, but his favor. And then, and then they lost it. Should we be worried about losing God's favor? Here's his first answer. Not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring, right? The word of promise identified Isaac, not some other offspring. The Jews would say, Israel would say, how's your blessing? Well, Father Abraham, he got a direct promise from God that God would do these things and we're children of Abraham. There's a problem with that, if that's your hope. Because what about Ishmael? Ishmael was also a child of Abraham. What about the six kids that Abraham had with Sarah's maid? All children of Abraham. So if you say you're a child of Abraham, you're identifying yourself as one of a group. But in that group are actually children of Isaac, who's the child of promise, and a bunch of other kids. So simply to say that you're a child of Abraham is not to say that you're in this favored position with God, right? That's the point. For this is what the promise said, verse 9, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So even though there's millions of offspring of Abraham, and if you go nationally and look around, many of the Islamic nations tie their, their direction from Abraham. You have Edom in the Old Testament from Abraham. You have different nations, and they're from Abraham. Not just Israel. You say, well, yeah, but there was the faithful ones, the ones that did good, and then there was the ones that didn't do good. That's what it's about. So he gives another Illustration. Look, the child of promises, twin kids. Look at illustration number two, verse 10. And so, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Isaac was the child of promise, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. What's going on? This is an example. God's favor was set by mercy on his kids. 
But you see, every child of Abraham wasn't one of his kids. There's, there's lots of people outside Israel who are child of Abraham. What, 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 about, what about, it must have been what they did. It must have been something good that, that they did or didn't do. And so here's the second example. Here's the twin children of Isaac in the womb. Before they've done anything, same DNA, same dad. No good works, no bad works, nothing. And, and God says to Rebecca, mom, well, the younger one's going to be the one who's favored. What? Yeah, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That's not in order that God's election. That's the plan of God. The plan of God. He's, he laid out what his plan would be. What's the plan? It's got to be your question. At least should be building is to say, okay, it wasn't about what the Israelites did. It was about whether or not they were in this favored group because they got all these things from God. To the point where he said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I don't understand that. Could it be that God saw that Esau would reject him? Maybe, it just doesn't say it explicitly. So you're left thinking that God does what he wants. And he set his favor on Israel. But when you look at Israel and they don't believe, Paul's saying, you don't know if you're looking at true Israel or not. You just don't know. It's about God's mercy. It's about his plan. It's about God deciding apart from anything in the human being whom he chooses. So then the question comes. It's got to come. This is amazing. Could this be? I can conceive all sorts of problems with this. Because the Bible clearly teaches we are not robots. What does it mean? So this question comes up, and it has to, and it comes up with Paul. This doesn't seem very fair. This doesn't seem very fair. It's actually a parenthesis. It's not the main point of chapter 9, but from verses 14 to 23, he deals with this parenthesis of, isn't this not fair? How can God still be righteous? How can he blame people if they reject him, if it's about his plan? Again, he hasn't clearly delineated for you here what his plan is. We know it. We've been swimming in it in Romans. We'll get to it, but think first about fairness. I'm a fair person. Man, if I get something, actually it usually runs the other way. If someone else gets something that I think I should also have, I want it. If I get something someone else doesn't have, you know, it doesn't matter so much to me if I share with them. But if it's the other way, I want what's mine. So Paul sees this. He says it in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice that God set his favor on who he wanted to? Is there injustice that God said, Esau, I hated, Jacob, I love? Is it injustice that before they were born, God had already chosen what he was going to do? Is God free to just choose to do what he wants? That doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. Okay, and Paul's answer is, by no means. It's not unfair. It's not unjust. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, 
It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's really heavy stuff and true for us to think about. That favor from God depends on God who has mercy. That's where it comes from. Wow. And then, and then he gives an illustration here. Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And the flavor as Paul does this, because where people go immediately is, oh look, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Oh look, God pushes people towards reprobation. Reprobation means that he pushes them towards hell. That's not the point of Paul. Not here. The point is, God does what he wants to further his plan. So what did he do? He raised up Pharaoh. Raising up is a good thing. He raised up Pharaoh to power. Pharaoh was nobody. He was a person. And the God, the king of kings, who, who raises up kings and puts them down, who gives authority and gives away, gave Pharaoh authority. Why did he do it? He's telling us here he did it because... He was going to show his power. And Pharaoh was the foil on which God showed that his power was greater in Exodus, right? Where, where, where Pharaoh did harden his heart, and then God did harden his heart on top of that, that Pharaoh's choices had, had consequence. And if God chooses to make choices have consequence, they will have consequence, because God's plan is he was showing his glory. What was he doing? He was redeeming his people taking them through the Red Sea, delivering them to a land. There's a plan there. God will do his plan. God was at work, and so God exalted Pharaoh to great power and authority given by God. God used that exalting as he wanted to. Pharaoh, rejecting God, was hardened for God's plan. Here's the important piece. What's his plan? It's really important. It's not an issue of whether God has power or not to do what he wants, because he does. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If he wills it, it will happen. Well, that brings up a really hard thing, because if I'm thinking if God wills it, it will happen, forget it. Have you had those conversations with people? If I'm elect, I'll go to heaven. But not up to me, so I'm going to sit and watch football. Why not? I promise, I'll get you out of here by 1.30. Seahawks are on. <laughs> but but, but that's, a, that's a big thing. So it doesn't matter, right? I'll just sit here because if God's going to save me, he'll save me. That's not this passage. This passage is God works according to his plan. There's a plan, you see. There's a plan that you know. You know it. God works according to it. He will not be altered. If he decides to harden someone, he can. Is that his normal operatus? He doesn't say this here that he does that. It says here, what he wants to do, he does. That's always been true of God. He's God, right? Don't lose me. Keep walking. Because you'll say, why does he still find fault? Who can do anything then? Who can resist his will? 
See, if God's will is stronger, this isn't the question, well, we're all robots, because we're not robots. Everybody here is making choices. And then here and here, people are making choices. In the text, people are making choices, real ones. And yet you cannot thwart God's will, can you? That comes down to you versus God, who gets to win? Well, I think I should win. Lightning bolt. Okay. So we know that if it's you versus God, you're going to lose. And what we're talking about here is God's plan. His plan, laid out, intentioned. He knows it's happening. Here he goes, and you will not thwart it. You will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? How can God judge anyone then? Because who can resist him? He's just doing what he wants with people. And the answer to this is that's the wrong question. It's a big divide between you and God. Because here he says in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out some of the same lump, one vessel for honor, honorable use, and another for dishonorable use? So Paul's answer is the same as Job's answer, the very oldest book of the Bible, we think. Is how can you even ask the question, cannot God do what he wants? If it's God's will, specifically, that someone not accept him, or if it's God's will, specifically, that something happened, guess what? It's going to happen, right? I don't think anyone argues that point doesn't matter where you think about your will versus God's will and salvation, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But you need to see first, if it's God's plan, it happens. That's Paul's point. God's the creator. If he decides to do something, he can do it. Job ends with Job doing what? This. I'm going to shut up now. That's what he does. I cannot respond to a God who made Leviathan, who made the universes, who created me, who is above all, and I am dust. And here I am telling my maker what he can do. Who do you think you are? Well, I'm Dak Swanson. I went to university. It's an incredible irony, isn't it? Think about this for a minute. Why have you made me like this for the, 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 what is molded, say, to the molder? The irony is that God takes the rejected vessels. God takes the vessels that are evil. God takes the wrong and the small and the tiny, you and me. God takes us and makes them glorious. Upside down God that we have. God doesn't take these vessels of honor and niceness and say, these are my presented vessels that are so classically wonderful. Look at the carving on the side. God takes cracked and broken pottery shards like you and me and makes us something beautiful in Christ. Upside down. Bottom up. The low is high. The exalted are humbled. The humbled are exalted by God. So Paul's not done, though. He says this. He says, he says this. Well, what if God, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? So what if God, 
What if God actually was very patient with people that rejected him, with vessels that were headed the wrong way, with, with things that were dishonorable, very patient with them in order that he might display his mercy, his vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. What if? Okay, the thing I want you to see right away in verse 22. What if? Paul doesn't say, thus saith the Lord to you, God is doing this and you are all pawns in his grand scheme. That, that's, that's not the statement. The statement is, hey, God is so powerful. Whatever he says goes. His plan cannot be changed. What's his plan? We haven't gotten there yet. That's the main thing. What's his plan? But God's able to make his plan happen. And so here it is happening. Don't talk back to God like you guys, like you think you should be sad at his plan. You don't have any say. And then he says, one possibility, what if, right? What if means I've got um, a possibility here. Someone says to me, for example, say, say, for example, you say, I'm really hungry. Well, what if, what if we go to Subway? Someone says, no, 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 no. What if we go to Coconut Kenny's because I like pizza? There's that thought of, it's not settled. He's giving his opinion about what it is. So here it is, he's saying, what if this? What if, here's, here's a possibility. What if this? Is this not possible? That what God is doing is he's taking and waiting and waiting while there's wickedness out there and people are choosing against him. They are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. They are. They are choosing it. And, and, and he's patiently waiting to reveal his sons. Oh, that sounds like something the Bible says in other places. Like maybe in Second Peter. God is not slow concerning his promises, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to know him. We have an upside-down God. What if he's waiting? I want to show you one, one section. We have time to do it. Go with me to Matthew chapter 22. The important piece is what is God's plan. We are not at all impugning God's power. But to make somehow us into robots that God is directing everything is not the point of this passage in the slightest. It's to say that God has a plan and God will fulfill it. Matthew chapter 22, verse 2. Jesus is speaking in the parables. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. Okay, he's talking about Israel, right? He's talking about invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's talking about God to his chosen nation, inviting them, and that's their purpose, is to come and worship Jesus. But they would not. And the text does not then say, Jesus doesn't give a parable, and therefore God invaded their minds and changed their wills in order that they might come to the wedding feast. Because you will be there. Your body will, as an empty shell. Invasion of the body snatchers. Doesn't say that, does it? 
No, the king is angry, it says, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore. Why were they not worthy? Because they didn't come. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. See what he's doing. Those who are not worthy actually become part of God's plan. Maybe they were all along, Paul would say. But see, the plan is this. The plan is redemption is God's mercy in Jesus Christ. It has always been that way. It's been always been that way that God planned since the fall. Remember the promise? The curse actually given to the, the serpent. Oh, he shall strike your huge, he shall bruise his head. From the very beginning, there's a Savior coming. From the very beginning, there's a Redeemer coming. From the very beginning, I'm setting it up so I deliver my people. And out of my, my nation will come the Savior. His name is Jesus Christ the Lord. And mercy will come to, to people through him. And so here we are, ending Romans 8, going, He loves us. We who are unworthy can trust Jesus Christ and go to heaven forever. That's where we are. We are in God's plan. God's plan is this. There is an offer for salvation out on the table for you today, Gentile, and for me. That offer is a true offer in God's plan that you would put your trust in Jesus Christ and live forever. That's the plan. If you reject it, hey, Matthew 22, I didn't actually finish it. Let's read to the end. Very interesting. What does he say? But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. I don't have a wedding garment? What's the wedding garment problem? You can't just wander in and say, I'm going to heaven. You actually have to put your faith in Jesus. You actually have to get righteousness that Jesus gives. Your faith has an object. It's not just generally, oh, I think God loves me, so I'm going to be okay. No, actually, you've got to put your faith in the Son. That's, that's the ticket. It's always been that way. It was that way in the Old Testament, Paul is saying, that with Israel, God had a plan. It was a plan of mercy. Not all Israel was God's. They didn't all humble their hearts like David did in Psalm 51 as we read. They didn't all bow before God. They weren't all sons of promise. God's plan is not thwarted. But see, actually, God had a plan that he's played out through the ages. And it's been hundreds. It's been thousands of years. God plays the long ball. But look, look just for a minute. We'll, we'll end here. I just want to read it. We'll pick it up next week because we won't hit it all. But I want you at least to hear. Look, these vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory, by the giving of his son, by the redemption on the cross, through Jesus Christ, even us, verse 24, whom he's called, not only from the Jews, but also miracle from the Gentiles. 
As indeed he says in Hosea, verse 25, those who are not my people, I will call my people. To who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. Look, the Old Testament talks about this. Verse 26, in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. You see, God's plan is working. All Israel is not Israel. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us with offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. They're quoting Hosea again. What shall we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see where he's headed? He's headed to explain to us how God um, um, puts people into hell. No! He's explaining how in God's plan we experience the love of Christ, us who have our faith in Jesus, and we go to heaven and how that's been God's plan. And Israel, oh Israel, God's nation, they're not accepting Christ and that's the issue. Righteousness. What kind of righteousness has Israel been looking for? They pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. It would if they did it. But we know from Romans 3, nobody does it. So they couldn't and they didn't succeed in reaching that law. So therefore, law condemns them. They've stumbled. They didn't pursue by faith. Believing that God had mercy. Believing that mercy is God's plan. Believing that compassion is what God will do. And he sent his son in order that we might have the righteousness that's by faith. Because the whole issue is what do you do with the stone of stumbling? With the rock of offense? His name is Jesus Christ. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God's promises have never been void. Look, there's redemption in Jesus. Not all Israel is, is Israel, but look, there's a remnant coming who will believe in Christ. We'll see it. The chapters are not done. There's a righteousness that's by faith. It's not what they've sought so far. So, we say today, and we end, and I tell you, oh, you might say, I just don't understand God's love. And I would tell you, it's you're right. You can't understand it. You don't deserve it. You receive it in Jesus. This is the problem for Israel. They didn't want to receive it. They wanted to say, okay, if I stay in the law, if I stay in the umbrella of protection, if I stay in the obedience zone, if I stay in the right spot with my works and my merit, God will shine his favor on me. And that's the plan of God, that by staying right, God blesses me. And God will have none of it. God says there's righteousness by faith alone. 
Even that a gift, Ephesians says. That your eyes opened to the wondrous truth that it's always been God's plan that we might trust him in Jesus Christ and thereby receive mercy. I left you with a quote, Martin Lloyd-Jones on the cross. Hell is filled with people who believe they deserve to be outside hell and inside heaven. Heaven is filled with people who believe they deserve to be outside heaven and inside hell. Where do you think you deserve to be today? We are the pieces of pottery, but we experience the mercy of God. Isn't it amazing? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Lord, we bow before your plan. Christ crucified, Christ raised. And we're amazed that it includes us, Lord. Father, I pray that we might excitedly be about proclaiming your plan. We might excitedly be about proclaiming your gospel. Help us, Lord. Father, please guard us. Please guard our hearts from the desire to fight over things we can't even know about our will and yours, Father. But I pray we might, with our wills, with our hearts, experience your love, even this little baby who's crying, Lord. Every way, we bless you. We thank you for your blessing. Thank you.